Um, or you can have a situation where both, you know, parties were invested in the business with different roles. And then um, it's time for, unfortunately, the marriage to unravel, divorce, and the decision has to be made. You know, what are we going to do with the business now? Who gets to, you know, if, if both have been involved, who gets to take it over? Um, or if just one has been involved, um, that person continuing the business and they have to deal with, you know, valuing that business. Welcome to the Business Transition Roadmap. My name is Elizabeth Ledoux, and through my years, I have seen how communities thrive when business succession and transition are done well. Me and my team at the Transition Strategists have been helping business owners develop and implement transition strategies for over 30 years. And on this show, we want to help you by giving you the roadmap to a healthy business transition. Let's get started. So hi, and welcome back to Business Transition Roadmap to our podcast. And I am so excited to welcome Kelly Robinson. She and I have known each other for many, many years. And recently she left her partner position at what she would call Big Law and launched her own law firm. She's got over 30 years of practice um, in law and About 16 years ago, she expanded her practice into family law. So did civil litigation and employment law prior to that uh, and during that. And then about 16 years ago, launched and expanded into family law, which she now has that as her primary focus. And for those of you who are curious what family law encompasses, um, it encompasses so much. It encompasses divorce, custody, um, parenting disputes, pre and post marital agreements, um, cohabitation agreements, which are interesting these days, and um, a variety of other things. So pretty much anything that you can think of around family, she helps with those kinds of issues and also also prevents, does some preventative type law in uh, keeping people out of trouble. So when they're happy, Um, Some of the agreements get done so that if anything happens, um, there are some boundaries and some things that people can navigate. So, Kelly, welcome. And I'm just so excited to have you here. You have such a great background. So how about if we start by you telling us a little bit about you and maybe a little bit about your why behind um, what you're doing today? All right. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. I'm um, honored to be here with you. This is fun. A little bit about me. Um, as Elizabeth said, I've been practicing law for 30 years. I have a wide variety background. I have not done the same thing that um, I started out with, which is, you know, could be unusual for lawyers. They tend to pick a type of law and stick with it. But I've been curious and like learning and like learning new things. So my career path has been more varied. I started, uh, as you said, with civil litigation, doing, you know, products liability, airplane crashes, Jeep crashes, those kind of things related to defects possibly in vehicles or airplanes and other type of devices like that. Or um, And then I did a lot of construction litigation and branched in eventually to employment law, representing um, mostly employers uh, against claims of discrimination, wage and hour issues. Um, negotiating management agreements. And so the whole gamut of 
employment law, then I just discovered, although I said I would never, ever want to touch family law um, because my parents had a very difficult divorce when I was a teenager, I swore I would never do that. And then 16 years ago, I was working with a couple of uh, colleagues who just seemed like they handled fascinating employment or uh, family law cases. And I thought I shouldn't be so close-minded. And so um, I started doing family law and just ended up loving it, loving helping people who are navigating really difficult situations or sensitive situations um, and using my legal skills for them. Um, and then, like I said, I never wanted to do family law. I also swore that I never wanted to have my own practice. And fast forward to about a month ago, and I decided I would, you know, I didn't make the decision a month ago, but about a month ago, I launched my own firm, having decided to leave big law after being there for 16 years. Um, and I am loving it so far. And I like to believe that, you know, life can be in the transitions. So I think maybe I've learned that concept um, along the way and have welcomed this change and am excited about it. And it's going very well. So thank you. Yeah, no, I am very excited that you are, that you did launch your practice. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's part of your next adventure. Uh, yep. 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 So it's amazing how, uh, you know, we all go through transitions all the time, whether mm-hmm. it's through, you know, one position to another or leaving big law and going into your own practice, um, all, all good things. And You know, one of the reasons why I thought it would be great to have you on here is because family, we do a lot with family transition. And I know that private companies actually have family influences in them, even if even if there aren't family members working in the company, um, there's still the business actually provides for those family members. And sometimes in divorces and other things, uh, the business can get caught up in some of the um turmoil at times that happens with those. And so um, for our listeners, I thought it would be great to have a little bit of a conversation about some of the things that you see in your work when you have businesses that are involved. Yes, I would agree that it comes up all too frequently in family law cases, especially in the context of divorces, but also actually um, even in prenuptial agreements when you have young uh, members of you know, the family getting married into families of, you know, significant wealth, and they're wanting to make sure that, you know, transitions don't get, you know, sort of, um, I guess, complicated or, you know, derail family planning because some something happens down the road. And so, yeah, it really comes up in the family law context, both before somebody's married and, and unfortunately, during a divorce, if there hasn't been um, proper planning for those kind of events and those kind of transitions. Yeah. Maybe you could share with us a couple of, you know, just a couple of typical things that you see and maybe some things that have been done that actually work. So things that haven't worked for, you know, just that you've seen typical things that happen. And then also maybe a couple of other pathways or other solutions that might've been a better way to do it. Um, you know, really one example that comes to mind all too frequently is when there's a business involved in the marriage. Um, it was started, uh, during the marriage or significantly grew during the marriage. Uh, 
and you either have one party who significantly is, you know, is the most responsible for that business, works in the business the most, um, or you can have a situation where both, you know, parties were invested in the business with different roles. And then um, it's time for, unfortunately, the marriage to unravel, divorce, and the decision has to be made. You know, what are we going to do with the business now? Who gets to, you know, if, if both have been involved, who gets to take it over? Um, or if just one has been involved, um, that person continuing the business and they have to deal with, you know, valuing that business. And that has, you know, a lot of um, emotion tied to it. You know, you can have a situation where the business, you know, for the person keeping the business, they think it's valued too high. And the person who um, is not getting to take, you know, go forward with the business thinks it's valued too low. And so that, that, you know, comes up all too often. And we also see situations where, you know, you have a business that involves outside partners um, and the family hasn't really addressed, you know, transitions, whether it be in the event of a divorce and one of the partners um, is divorcing and how is that partner who's divorcing buying the other partner or buying their spouse out or can they? Um, how do they get cash from the partnership in order to make that feasible? Or outside the context of the divorce, you being in business with your you know partners and not talking about what's going to happen when we're ready to retire or we're ready to pass the baton on to the next generation. And now you might be the partner who's staying in it and you have partners passing it on to their kids. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't really want to be in business with their kids, but the way our agreements are, I'm stuck with that. So um, everything's all well and good until it's not, right? Right. <laughs> until, until you realize, oh man, we didn't really think this all the way through or we didn't, you know, properly plan for this event, you know, this event. And so it really can catch people, you know, off guard. And, uh, you know, then on the flip side, you have the the spouse who's not involved in the business saying, oh my gosh, had I known that this was a possibility, then I would have maybe pushed for things during the marriage to get taken care of differently to provide um, some additional protections. So, you know, I think there's, when things are going along and you don't want to rock the boat or you don't even really think about it, um, life's, life's fine. And then all of a sudden there's a monkey wrench thrown into it and you have to say, oh my gosh, um, I wish we would have talked about these things and figured out how to transition better in these events. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I've, I've found many, many times, um, that so many business owners don't have a shareholder agreement and they haven't discussed things. And, um, even individuals, you know, when you're, when you're an individual and you're the hundred percent owner, uh, having a shareholder agreement could also be beneficial. I don't know. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like it's not needed. However, well, we've got an example of an owner right now who's, he's a single owner, right? hundred percent owner thinking about bringing in four other successors. So thinking about doing that and he, so that he can prepare for that is preparing a shareholder agreement basically one that he would like for himself. And then as he invites them in, they would be invited to either sign that agreement um, or not. 
and the agreement is really, you know, the way that he wants it. Uh, so I found that owners, they tend not to want these agreements or not believe that they need them, uh, because it puts boundaries on them that they don't really want at times and they feel kind of locked in. Uh, yeah. I also, and you can tell me what you think about this, Kelly, and your honest opinion, but these agreements are for when things don't go well. They're, they're kind of the last place to stop. It doesn't mean that you can't negotiate something different if everybody's still in agreement with doing it, a, you know, slightly different than the shareholder agreement would state. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly right. It generally should be, you know, if things go south and we can't agree on anything, here's what's going to govern. And what's interesting is that what may make sense, you know, when you're doing it or when they did it 20 years ago, um, and the reasons why they had certain agreements in their share, you know, in their partnership agreement about sale, about value, about restrictions on transfers, things that might have made sense at the beginning of a partnership. Um, suddenly, once you're 20 years into it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and how you need to think about addressing that before there's a real need to address it, because at that point, whoever is really needing to address that obviously has lost leverage because they're the person needing the change, so to speak. Right. So I think even if you do have a partnership agreement or a shareholder agreement, those should be revisited um, on, you know, a regular basis to make sure that those that are governed by it understand what it means and that they don't think, you know, they don't see that circumstances may, may have changed where it doesn't make sense that it contained those provisions. So, you know, right. And some of those circumstances could be kids growing up um, and potentially being interested or what other things would make that like what would trigger them to review it? Or is it what would you recommend? Is it just a timing every year or every three years? I think if 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 shareholders or partners who are you know involved in a business venture together will at least, you know, revisit it uh, during their annual meeting each year. I mean, most of those years, it's going to be, we don't really need to talk about it. There's nothing to talk about here, but at least it's something that doesn't, you know, when it is time, maybe it's every five years, suddenly you're like, oh, we really, we haven't, it's on our agenda every year and we never talk about it. We really, we really should now, right? I think um, it's probably something to just have as a placeholder, you know, are the agreements do we have everything in there how we want it? Do we Are we addressing how things get transferred? Are we addressing how the business gets valued in the event one of us um, needs to be bought out? Um, those type of things should, you know, I think it's just because you should be having an annual meeting. You should be sort of a placeholder on that, even if you don't end up devoting a lot of time to it. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that things do change. And one of the things also that changes is just the business itself. Mm-hmm. Um, finding that in the beginning when everybody is building and growing the company and it's small, um, maybe not of a high, high value, right. then the share agreement's pretty, I mean, you know, it's fairly straightforward to put together as you, as the company grows and gets more valuable and also, um, just expands and maybe gets more complicated with more arms, uh, you know, mm-hmm. on it. Um, 
then that agreement sometimes gets completely outdated and isn't even possible. Right. 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 Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, the other, the other issue, I think um, we see people, you know, they haven't addressed is that let's just say, you know, with your partners, you have this agreement that you, you know, you're going to all stick in it. There's going to be severe restrictions on transfer or sale. Um, and there has to be a you know, meeting of the mind. You know, you have to all unanimously agree if you're going to sell any of the assets or, uh, and that all sounds fine and good until, you know, you're getting closer to retirement. And then all of a sudden you don't have any, none of your children are necessarily interested in taking over your business. And then you're sitting there going, okay, so now what does this mean? You, you know, you can't force somebody to, to come in and take it over. And so then what's going to happen upon, you know, your death, if, if you're leaving this partnership piece into your estate, even if it's in trust to your heirs, you know, who's going to manage that? Um, who's going to step in and be that partner role? Is it going to be now the trustee? And what does that do to, you know, the, to, you know, what you thought you were leaving your heirs. Um, so I think there's always that piece about those who build a business and, you know, hope that maybe, you know, their next generation is going to want to continue it on. That's not always the case. I think you see that as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We see that. And um, we also see that, you know, there's sometimes an expectation that the kid or kids will mm -hmm. come in. And sometimes it's just not the right thing for them. So um, they're just not as interested, engaged, and it's more of a burden than it is right. something that they love and, you know, gives them wings right. and launches them. Right. Yeah. Or then the other, yeah. you know, the other thing you have is if, if more than one of the kids want to, you know, want to be the one that comes in and takes over. <laughs> That's right. That's the flip one? side, right? Which one? Yeah. 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 How so. do we do that? Yeah. 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 It's great. Um, that makes me think of a, it's a client out of, uh, well, there were three kids, um, dad who wanted out, three kids that wanted to be in. They were all active in the company. And the blessing for them was that all three of the kids got along, one, and they all really recognized their each other's talents. So there was a lot of uh, appreciation of the differences and working together uh, instead of lack of appreciation for the differences and, um, you know, creating that tension between them. So they were able to team together when sometimes when you have multiple kids coming in, um, fairness, equality, and everybody wanting to be the CEO doesn't work. Right. Yep. And it's mm -hmm. especially complicated in the situation we started off, you know, I started off with, which is if you have outside partners, let's just say there's three of you and um, one of them, one of, you know, two of them have been the money people. One of them has been the, the worker bee, you know, the, I guess the brains versus the finances or whatever, however you want to look at it. And then all of a sudden they're all getting, you know, close to retirement age or beyond retirement age. And now you have the new generations coming in. And what if, you know, the, the partner who's been the worker bee isn't, you know, 
who's going to take over when the other two partners have been basically uninvolved in the business for the most part, rather than, you know, pretty hands off. Um, and there's no one to, to step in. And what if all the all three generations that are coming up, none of them have the appropriate expertise to manage this huge company that it's grown into? You know, how do you basically if you don't address it as the business owner who's built this, how do you expect the next generation to navigate that when they don't even understand or have the skills to do so? Right. Right. It'd be a real mess. Yeah, that's why that's why I like the concept of transition being a journey, because and, um, you know, in other podcasts, I've said this before and it's in the book also. But foundationally, I believe why the statistics are so low that businesses thrive forward in the next generation is because the first generation or the prior generation leave too soon. They have this idea that um, they don't have to deal with it. And they actually, you know, through osmosis, somehow that next generation will figure it out. And uh, most of the time they try to figure it out if they can, because right. it's an asset that, you know, is functioning. But most of the time the business declines to their level of knowledge, the next generation's, the successor's level of knowledge. Right. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's unrecoverable. Yeah. Yep. Makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, in the divorce context and you have a business that both spouses have built up and it's going to be difficult for one or the other to take over, um, you know, that can that can get very tricky. Uh, Either they have to come to an agreement, you know, as to how are we going to continue to be business partners, even if we're not married or if one of them's leaving. Um, and giving up that control, how to make them comfortable with the fact that the other person's going to be able to continue to run it or recognizing that they're going to have to bring somebody in to fill those skills, which is going to deplete, you know, the money, cash flow available for any buyout, that kind of thing. So, you know, we, I have navigated some, um, divorces where the spouse is not, you know, Generally won't be involved, but it will be involved for a while, you know, negotiating employment agreements to cover them um, in lieu of maintenance, that kind of thing. So you have to get creative, especially if parties going through a divorce, you know, can't figure out how to, um, you know, what to do with the business, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. And um, the creativity, you know, you start with relationships that are intact, When you first start out and um, the idea behind it is to figure out how to meet as many objectives of everyone involved as you go through the transition uh, and actually know which ones you're giving up. So if you're an owner and you want something, but the other person wants it too, or right, then I think it's, I think it's, great to be able to give the other person the gift versus having that feeling of it being taken from you. You know, well, that person got this and blah, blah, blah. Um, versus gee, if you want that, how about we trade and I get this and you get that and you give me that. And you know, it's a better, it's better in the negotiation. And I think it's difficult for partners or people to have great relationships in a transition where there's tension 
uh, it takes some real mindfulness to get through that. Yeah. And in a, no, yeah. in a normal business, you know, context, that's one thing. And then you add the layer of a divorce and it's nearly impossible because you have all those emotions. Right. <laughs> all those emotions. Yeah. yeah tie in. It depends. Yeah. So Kelly, um, you know, one thing that came to mind is in the beginning of a, of a new venture, say you have some partners and you're going into this new venture. One of the things that I've seen in the share agreement is the ability to buy out a company at a very low value. And it's typically because the business is of a low value. So it kind of doesn't matter right. in the beginning. And the idea behind it is to make it easy for you to, you know, buy out the other partner. Um, if you end up in that scenario that you talked about before where your kids aren't interested and you really want to cash out the value of it, but the share agreement is written. So it's just book value or some low, mm -hmm. low value. Um, how often do you see that and what would you do about that? Well, unfortunately we do see that and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. If the other members or partners are not willing to, change that, that's the agreement you're stuck with. That's why it's hard to, it's hard when you haven't looked at this and considered it over the years as the business has grown because you can't go into a court and just say, oh, this is no longer fair or this no longer makes sense. You're, you're pretty much stuck with, it's a contract and that's what's going to govern. Yeah. And the court is not here to, you know, it's not there to help people out of bad business decisions, basically. It's so curious, because, yeah. um, you know, what would be your thoughts on the concept of when you begin your business in a share agreement to put something in there about um, a market value, a fair market value, start there instead of at the low value, and then if the business was unable to pay full value or it was going to significantly impair the business to do that. Cause some, some businesses, um, the money is reinvested and reinvested and reinvested for so many years that it actually isn't, doesn't create enough cash flow. It's not built to get people out of the company. Um, so my example of that um, is a company that we worked with. There were five sisters, all 20% owners, um, had been for years from their father. And they needed, all of them needed to transition at some point. So the strategy of how do you get them out and started with just getting one sister out, just one, and building the business to get used to the payments so that one could get out and then another and then another. And I think now they're, they have three. The third one is just leaving now. It's taken years to do it. But, um, yeah, at a fair market value. So my question to you is starting with a shareholder agreement, do you start with that low value or do you start with a fair value? And then if you need to change the strategy because then you're all in agreement and potentially keeping the business whole and healthy so it can pay the owner that's leaving. Yeah. I mean, I do think it makes sense to set the agreements at the beginning as to be the fair market, you know, fair value or fair market value, because 
that's going to, you know, that's going to be fair to everybody. And at the time, if like you said, it gets valued at, at, at a price that makes it impossible for the business to, to fund a buyout, it's going to force them to come. It's a way to force people to come to an agreement about it because absent that agreement, you're basically going to fold the company, right? So that's a better scenario when you're basically forcing everybody come, come to an agreement or we all lose versus starting an agreement with book value and then never being able to get anybody to change it. Right. Because they get entrenched. Right. And they might be the type of people who are like, Oh no, we're going to just keep continuing to pass this generation to generation. And with no, you know, no one should ever want to get out of it. And it's like, well, yeah, it's fine for you to say that because you know who your partner's with. What about the next generation? All of a sudden they're partners with complete strangers and things may not be going as smooth then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of unlikely that it will be that smooth. Yeah. 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 So, so gosh, yeah. Well, um, Kelly, what kind of in closing here, what would be one thing that you would recommend that business owners and our listeners think about or do when they're in business and considering, um, potentially getting out? I think my best advice to anybody in a business, whether they're trying to get out now or not, would just be to make sure you've thought through the what ifs. What if I got divorced? What if my partner got divorced? What if I were to pass away? What does my, what would my, what position would my estate be in and my heirs relative to this business? What would be the situation if my partner were to pass away and it went to their heirs, um, what, where would that put me? And just think about all the what ifs that you may not want to think about and make sure you understand what your current agreements would do with that situation and that you're comfortable with it. And if you're not, that's the time to come together and say, Hey guys, have we all thought about this? And if we haven't got guys and gals, let's think about it now before one of us needs to be thinking about it. Right. Yeah. And, and that you're thinking about it as a collective group. Um, again, exactly. concept of putting people first, exactly. because if you're collectively thinking about the entire group, uh, you know, you kind of have to look at yourself and go, gee, this might be hard for me to buy my partner out, right. Or to get to get that done. Um, it also is going to be hard for them if I have to do that, but we don't want it to destroy the business because the business is what's responsible for getting the money to either that partner who's leaving or the family. And all of those years of hard work and building and growing, uh, you really want to, I think, harvest some of that, maybe not at the max, max, max value. If you're going to an internal type sale, which would be a partner employee family member. Um, but definitely you want some good value for all the work that you put in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gosh, Kelly, um, 
Yeah, I sure appreciate you being here and sharing so openly with all of our listeners. And um, if you are interested or want to ask Kelly any questions, her information will follow the podcast. So her email and um, her new company, Kelly Robinson Law, is the new name of her company. And um, she's got so many years of great experience You've done some amazing things for some people that I know and that we've worked with and um, just really appreciate all of your openness today. All right. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Business Transition Roadmap. If you are listening to this and you find yourself wanting to go deeper into these topics and start the process of putting together your transition strategy, I'd love to offer you a free initial strategy session with my team, where we'll help you to explore the future transition of your business. Head over to www.transitionstrategist.com to schedule a call. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Business Transition Roadmap.